From the University of Alberta Alumni Association, it's What the Job. I'm Matt Ray. But some individuals with perfectionism say, well, you know, I'm not smart or I'm not capable. I just work so hard that I know my stuff. And that's the only reason why I've gone where, where, I've, where I've gone to today. Um, and other people maybe take the opposite approach where they attribute it all to chance. It's just luck, right place, right time. You know, it was all just good fortune. People were in a good mood the day they, you know, they gave me the award. Um, but we can see in, in both instances, um, people are attributing their success to something other than their own abilities. On this special episode of What the Job, I talk with psychologist Becky Ponting about imposter syndrome. Imposter syndrome is the feeling that you don't belong, that you're a fraud, and at any moment, your boss will figure you out. It can also be the feeling that all the success you've had is just a matter of luck or circumstance, and not your actual abilities. Becky and I chat about the nature of imposter syndrome, how to identify it, and what we can do to help relieve the anxiety it causes. What the Job is made possible with the support of our affinity partner, TD Insurance. Did you know that through the TD Insurance Mellish Monarchs program, University of Alberta alumni are entitled to preferred rates on car, home, condo, and renter's insurance? Save even more by bundling your car and home insurance. To learn more about how you can save, please visit tdinsurance.com slash ualbertaalumni. So what's your name and what's your job? My name is Becky Ponting, and I'm a psychologist with Counseling and Clinical Services at the University of Alberta. And what do you do? What's a sort of day-to-day or what sort of uh, clients do you see in that job? So typically we would see um, undergraduate and graduate students enrolled at the University of Alberta. Um, and day-to-day, I would say the bulk of what I do would be one-on-one individual therapy. Um, and I also provide um, group therapy. I provide supervision for practicum students and do some workshops as well. And how long have you been in this role? So my current job, I've been um, here at the university since 2013. And I've been a psychologist since 2006. Uh, and today you're on the podcast normally. I would just keep going. We talk about this great career journey uh, and maybe another time. You never know. But today we're going to talk about a special topic, something that I think affects most people in the workplace, at least when you're starting out, but at any, at any point really, uh, and that is imposter syndrome. Um, can you talk a little bit about what imposter syndrome is? Sure. Yeah. So imposter syndrome is a term that we use for a phenomenon in which individuals um, have the thought that they really don't belong, that they're an imposter, that um, sometimes people will have the belief that um, they're only where they are because of good luck or good fortune or fluke. And they tend to attribute their success to kind of random factors. And, um, and that can lead them to feel very much like they don't belong. And that sometimes um, they may have the thought that they're about to be, you know, found out and that somebody's going to pull them aside and say, you don't belong here and, and get out. Yeah, that's, uh, that sounds familiar. <laughs> I think. Now, I said it was something that lots of people uh, experience, but uh, maybe I'm wrong. Is it common? Do most people experience this? Yeah, you're correct. It is common. Um, and 
one thing to be aware of is that imposter syndrome or um, sometimes it's called imposter phenomenon is um, not a mental illness. It's not, um, it's not something that we would diagnose someone with. It's more of a phenomenon that um, most people have experienced at least once in their life. They say about 70% of people will have an experience of the imposter phenomenon at least once um, in the course of their lifetime. And oftentimes we see this when we're moving into a new role. Uh, and what, what causes people to feel this way? Why is it that imposter syndrome is common? Well, I, uh, from what the literature tells us, we know that people are more prone to feeling um, a sense of the imposter syndrome when they're working in an area with a lot of uncertainty. Um, it often comes up when people are different in some way from kind of what the norm is in their area of expertise. Um, it's more common for people who grew up with a background of maybe um, a lot of emphasis on high achievement. So people who may have um, grown up in families where achievement was really emphasized, maybe overemphasized, are uh, more vulnerable to experiencing imposter syndrome. So that that sort of external pressure is already on you, you feel the need. It's kind of interesting, though, you'd think if you come... So, I mean, I because I read the Folio article that you did um, with Jillian a while back, and one thing that struck me was that uh, perfectionism can be something that leads to imposter syndrome. Whereas you think it was a bit of the opposite. Like if you're working hard to do the absolute perfect job, you'd feel like you fit in. Yeah, it's kind of paradoxical. So we see that some people with um, perfectionist traits will believe that they know they work hard, but they believe that the only reason they're successful is because they're working 10 times harder than everyone else. And whether or not that's true um, is up for debate. But but some individuals with perfectionism say, well, you know, I'm not smart or I'm not capable. I just work so hard that I know my stuff. And that's the only reason why I've gone where, where, I've, where I've gone to today. Um, and other people maybe take the opposite approach where they attribute it all to chance. It's just luck, right place, right time. You know, it was all just good fortune. People were in a good mood the day they, you know, they gave me the award. Um, but we can see in, in both instances, um, people are attributing their success to something other than their own abilities. It's interesting, too, because you want to stay humble a little bit as well. But uh, it seems like if you go too far, you get caught up in imposter syndrome. You called it a phenomenon. Um, but are there... Are there long-term effects if uh, if you're continually doubting yourself like this? There can be. Um, and as much as it's common, I would say that for most people, it's something that's maybe on the mild end of the spectrum. They're able to manage it on their own. You know, I mean, maybe they can get an informal type of support by talking with a, a friend or loved one and just you know, get that, get their confidence shored up a little bit by having a, a someone who cares about them say, no, you belong, you, you know, you own this. Um, other people, though, may um, struggle to the point where they need more than just the informal kind of social support that they can get from friends and family. Some people actually will find that um, their imposter syndrome is so severe that um, they're limiting themselves. So maybe they don't apply for jobs because they 
worry that it would be seen as a joke or, you know, they um, disqualified themselves from applying for an award um, due to, you know, believing that they're inadequate. And, and that can be very frustrating for those around um, around us when they see us, you know, dismissing um, positive feedback, ignoring opportunities. What are some of the things, if people are noticing this about themselves, maybe if they're listening right now and they're thinking, oh, that sounds familiar, what are some of the things that they can do to sort of build that confidence and overcome the imposter syndrome? One of the things um, that I encourage people to do um, is to seek out some information. And because oftentimes people with imposter syndrome will almost um, have blinders on it and be fearful of seeking out feedback, right? So, you know, if we can take an example of maybe um, someone's in a, a new area in their career, feeling uncertain, they may have the fear that everybody's unhappy with their performance, but never think to ask. So that's something I'll often start with um, when working with someone in this situation is, well, what, what kind of feedback do you need here? And if people are reluctant to seek that out because they're fearful that it'll be negative, sometimes we can talk through that and say, well, is, is it better to know, though, like if your performance is, is really problematic, um, you know, how, how can you change it if you can't face it? So let's get that, that feedback for you. Um, and then so many times it'll turn out that somebody who's convinced that they're on the verge of being fired actually finds out that their performance is perfectly fine, that they're doing okay. When you're working with students, is 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 this a lot of what you see? When they end up just sort of challenging their own assumptions or finding answers to their anxieties, and and that helps. I would say it's it's pretty common that I see it, and you know, interestingly, it seems to be almost the highest achieving students where it's the worst. You know, which again is kind of counterintuitive, but. Um, it seems like sometimes maybe students who are more in the average realm, they're used to sometimes maybe failing, trying something, not succeeding at first. They're used to kind of putting in the work and it's less terrifying to them. And so sometimes it's these elite high achievers who maybe haven't ever had a taste of failure. And so they've become almost phobic of it, you know, so, so, you know, so fearful that disaster is just around the corner and that all it would take is one, you know, B to, for it to befall them. And um, I've, I found it can be more challenging to work with people who are higher achievers because of the fact that they seem to be, um, you know, having that fear of failure and, and trying to help them see things in a different way. Um, sometimes clients will think I'm telling them to be average, right? That I'm telling them to, to set their sights lower. I wouldn't have thought that. I wouldn't have thought, I mean, it makes sense now that we talk about it, but that the more used to success you are, the more you might be fearful of failure and the higher standards you might put on yourself, which uh, in, in turn leads you to believe you're not achieving as high as you need to be. Um, I'm curious also about how you might help someone. Like if one, if someone has a coworker who is just down on themselves all the time, how can you uh, help them improve? Right. So if somebody um, that we know seems to have a distorted view of their own abilities or achievements, sometimes um, 
we can kind of gently lead them to think about evidence for what they're seeing, right? So if somebody says, well, you know, I didn't do well in that presentation, I'm a disaster, I'm close to being fired, you know, helping that person slow down, okay, so how, how do you know, like, how do you know you're about to get fired? Um, and unless their answer is, well, because the boss just said that he will very likely fire me, unless that's the answer, you know, we, we got to look deeper, right? Is there is there evidence? Did you get a memo saying, you know, that you're going to be fired? Did, did colleagues tell you that this was discussed in a room when you weren't there? And, um, you know, I've I found that people don't usually have compelling evidence like that. Usually the evidence is like, you know, my boss's eyebrow raised when I talked about the project and I think he was really mad, right? And then we can look at that and say, well, how, how strong is that evidence? This is just so familiar to me from, from at the very least grad school, but reading into situations, trying to uh, read the tea leaves instead of actually confronting the thing that you're anxious about. So is that then, so I don't want to say secret, but is that then a, a strategy if you're feeling like you're just a, a fraud or you're feeling anxious about um, your performance, just asking questions, maybe at like a one-on-one -on -one with your supervisor or something, asking those kinds of questions and trying to get to the information, that seems to be one effective way of at the very least getting to the bottom of things. Right, right. Especially with graduate students, I'll encourage them, you know, to open up a line of dialogue with their supervisors. You know, how do you, how do you feel I'm doing so far? And am I meeting your expectations? And, um, you know, again, people are a bit terrified to do that because they're afraid of hearing bad news. But, you know, I'll encourage people um, to, to seek out that feedback. And sometimes it's bad, right? It's not always that we get a, a glowing and a um, pat on the head. Sometimes we get told that we're not performing up to standard, but um, at least that's um, a platform that we can jump off of to try to change, right? Rather than um, just being in the dark, wondering if we're disappointing people and never knowing. Yeah, I wonder actually if it's better if it'd be more reassuring to find out that truth, even if it is the truth you fear, so that you can at least move on rather than live in the stress of feeling like you're a complete fraud. Yeah, and I've seen that actually, that again, you know, when people invite these conversations with either a supervisor or a boss, I mean, it it often goes well, but it doesn't always go well. And yet, at least when there's honesty, um, and when the individual gets all the information, at least they can then make an informed choice of how to proceed. This is all another thing I think about, which I don't know may not relate at all. But you often hear like "fake it till you make it," which sounds a bit like embracing imposter syndrome. Does that work at all, like psychologically in your mind? If you just are pretending that no, I'm in there, does that actually just give you the confidence that yes, you do belong? I, you know what, I would say that there is truth to it, that, you know, to some extent, um, we know that confidence can impress people. And if, if you can, they, you know, there's that quote, if you can fake sincerity, you've got it made. And so if you're able to somehow um, portray some confidence, and um, I guess I would say, you know, put on the role of of somebody who knows what they're talking about and, and try, you know, walking that walk, talking that talk, see how that feels. Sometimes um, acting as if um, we can kind of act our way into the right thinking, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, that being said, 
Um, I also think authenticity matters. So it, it is, a, again, a bit paradoxical where um, sometimes the answer is, you know, just assume you're doing fine and, um, you know, keep smiling and, and act like you belong. And sometimes you can bump up against the limits of that. And then it's time to maybe get honest and, and ask someone, how, how am I doing? Because I, I can't tell now, right? I'm not getting feedback and I'm, I'm not sure if I'm meeting your standards or not. And uh, there's value in that as well. I think too about, you know, people entering their first jobs or entering a really junior position and not maybe quite understanding how they fit in and everyone else being more senior than them. Seems like that is a moment too where it's just about that communication, being able to express what you're feeling to your supervisor or whomever, to try to figure out your role and how you're how you're performing, and that that would help the anxiety of it. Yeah, I mean, I, when I think of my own experience, um, you know, I finished my master's when I was. Let's see, I was 25 when I was, and then I was working to, as a provisional psychologist, working to register as a psychologist. And um, I was really self-conscious about being too young to be doing this work. And I felt it with clients and I felt it with my supervisors and I felt it with colleagues. And, you know, in hindsight, um, I wish I had confided, at least in my supervisor, you know, one-on-one, -on -one. I think it probably would have been helpful. And I was using the fake it till you make it strategy. And yeah, I mean, it got me through, but I think yeah, here, I you are. <laughs> here I am, it works. It, you know, uh, if, uh, yeah, it can, it can get you so far, but I guess I think I, in hindsight, maybe had a little bit um, of suffering that didn't need to happen. Right. Maybe, maybe it would have been beneficial to kind of let someone see behind the curtain and, and explain that I was having some problems with confidence and maybe I could have gotten more support at that time. And is imposter syndrome a sort of uh, like research area specialty of yours, or is it just a part of a bunch of different things that you're interested in? It's actually, um, it's not an area of research for me. It's actually, um, I took over a workshop on the topic from um, a colleague who had created it, Richard Dietrich. He's um, a psychologist practices um, in Edmonton and he had created the workshop because it was such a common concern um, for our students. So many students were coming in and, you know, explaining that they felt that they didn't belong. Um, some students would say, I think, um, you know, my university acceptance was a mistake or my award must be um, just an oversight. You know, they got my name wrong and they, they let me in by accident. And so um, I think Richard created the workshop because we hoped we could help more people, you know, by by kind of addressing it in that format. So, um, yeah, and then I've just kind of taken that over um, from there. I'm sure it's a popular workshop and I'm sure lots of students go to it because there's so much pressure on students and then so much pressure for them to get meaningful careers and then to excel in those careers. So I can see how all of those pressures they put on themselves, people put on themselves, we all put on ourselves, I suppose, and uh, manifests in feeling perhaps not uh, not worthy or not good enough, especially, I think, in, in comparison to peers. And we live in, you know, an age of social media where everything is lots of performative things in our face all the time of success. Um, and that obviously must play a role, too. So it's it's difficult. I'm, it must be. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
um, well, and I think also um, there's a lot of competition that happens in an academic setting. And I mean, I guess depending on where you end up for your career, um, it may or may not be this the same level of, you may not face the same level of competition that you did as a student. And um, that's something I try to encourage people to remember that um, life isn't a race where we get a gold medal if we can just complete it the fastest. You know, I mean, I wish I had slowed down my degree. I wish I had taken more time to um, take courses I really enjoyed instead of courses that I thought I could do well in. Um, and I just didn't know there was time. You know, I felt this pressure. And yet now looking back, I realize, you know, your career is going to be you know, 40 plus years, you've got lots of time to make mistakes or switch course or, you know, try a different path. And um, yeah, no, no gold medals for finishing first. And in fact, um, there can be a lot of value in actually just enjoying the process. I remember my grad school days as well. And uh, a lot, that's why I was like, this is so familiar because that was lots of, <laughs> lots of imposter syndrome. Um uh, I remember I was first generation university, so I didn't have any family who knew about it. So it was very daunting for me, but I really felt like I had to live up to that. And I think I felt that all through grad school. But when I got into the working world and just doing that sort of job, it generally faded back. And I think part of it is that lack of competition and there being more of a collegial, you know, we're all just working together to finish projects and things like that. And you eventually see how you fit into that, but never felt that way in grad school. I think it's a difficult environment, especially because of the level of talent around you and the competition. And it's hard not to internalize all that, I guess. But I wonder, too, um, not to try to say that it's all generational changes, but I wonder, too, if we're getting to a point where people are more comfortable being open with their feelings and talking about how they're feeling about things and, and perhaps changing that culture of how grad school and academics are in general. It could be. I mean, there's been shifts. Um, one really interesting shift I've seen recently is, um, you know, although imposter syndrome is um, important to recognize and sometimes even just awareness of it can help with it, um, there's also been kind of a, a new wave where people are commenting on the fact um, that there there is systemic bias, right? So there's um, systemic racism, sexism, and sometimes those things are not located, you know, within an individual where this person just needs to believe in themselves more or have better confidence. Sometimes people can be facing real barriers. And um, so the, the article um, that brought this to my awareness is called um, Stop Telling Women They Have Imposter Syndrome. Um, that's from 2021. It was uh, Rachika and Cholshan. And I thought that made, they made an interesting point, right? Which is that um, when we talk about imposter syndrome, we want to be hesitant about implying that um, if somebody's struggling and feeling like they don't belong, that it's always in their own head, right? We want to also, you know, have some awareness that there could be a very good reason why people feel that they aren't belonging. And maybe it's because they're being you know, ignored when they make a point or interrupted all the time or their contributions are getting dismissed. And um, so I think we can hold both realities. I mean, imposter syndrome is is valid and worth discussing and, and worth being aware of. And it's not always the whole story. 
That's an excellent point. And I'm so glad you brought it up so that we don't just flatten all of imposter syndrome down to everyone experiences the same way and the same thing. Um, because I'm sure different people have experienced different kinds of barriers, as you pointed out. So that's, I, I really appreciate that. Thank you. Um, just one thing before we finish, I just was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about your work with students. I, I know you've already talked about it a little bit, but what kind of concerns overall do you hear from them? And maybe even just a sort of summary of the kind of advice that, that you give back. Sure. Yeah. Well, um, my orientation as a therapist is primarily um, cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, and so within the model um, that I use for, for my work, I focus a lot on thoughts and behaviors. Um, and by changing thoughts and behaviors, um, the theory is that we can change how we feel. And if you think of kind of a triad, you know, with a triangle with each corner labeled, you know, um, thoughts, behaviors, and emotions, um, emotions are really hard to change in isolation. Usually if we want to feel something different, we need to either um, tell ourselves something different in the form of a thought, or we need to do something different in the form of a behavior. And so with cognitive behavioral therapy, um, I help people start to become more aware of what they're telling themselves in terms of their thoughts and, and what they're doing in terms of behaviors. And then uh, we can start to use those things to um, create the feelings we, we would prefer to have. So you were a counselor before COVID, and you're still a counselor as COVID enters. It's almost second year now. Are there any particular issues with students that you see arising more frequently now that we've been going through the pandemic for so long? Um, and with those particular concerns, how do you address them with something as large and beyond our control as COVID and, and all the other things going on in the world? Yeah, that's that's a great question. Um, I guess my answer kind of has has two components. One is, um, you know, we with the pandemic, we talked a lot about bubbling at different points, right? Let's who's in your bubble, and I kind of learned to ask people like, how how's your bubble? How how cozy is it? How um, privileged is it, right? Because for some of us, like maybe the pandemic, you know, if we had supportive friends and family and lovely homes and um, you know, resources to order in food whenever we wanted, you know, maybe we, we viewed it one way. And I've had um, clients for whom, you know, they were able to really um, just huddle down, they like the online classes, they get lots of support. And, um, you know, they're, they're surviving, maybe even they're thriving. Um, but there are people for whom this was a very different experience where maybe their bubble's not so cozy, right? Maybe they're in a home in which, um, you know, there are lack of resources or lack of support or, um, you know, they're not able to meet their basic needs because um, suddenly, you know, they're cut off from the university internet and the, the resources at the library. And for those individuals, it's been a very different pandemic. And um, certainly for, for some people, we are seeing really um, increased, um, depression and anxiety and, and just kind of, um, just more barriers that people are facing. Right. So if, let's just say somebody with, 
with depression, sometimes we'll use a technique called behavioral activation, where we get somebody to think about things that used to bring them pleasure and get them to do those things again. I mean, um, you know, with the pandemic, you know, you know, I found I would ask people, you know, do, do you like walks? Because you can still do that if you don't like walks. Like, I can't tell you to go to a movie. I can't tell you to go see your friends and get a coffee. You know, all the things that we would normally suggest to people who need some um, some pleasure, some comfort in their life. Suddenly those those avenues are cut off and, and it, that's been tough for people. Yeah, I think uh, the second thing I was going to comment on, though, in terms of um, changes um, that I've seen since the pandemic is that um, one thing we know about about anxiety and worry is that there can be this kind of underlying intolerance of uncertainty. And um, intolerance of uncertainty can underlie a, a lot of problems. And I mean, what have we faced, you know, as as humans that's been less you know, less certain than than what we're dealing with now with this pandemic. Just when we think we've got a handle on it, it, it shape shifts again, right? And there's so many um, elements like personal, professional, um, political, it's all kind of all, um, interwoven and there's uncertainty on all fronts. And so that's a really difficult thing for, for many of us to tolerate, let alone somebody who maybe already has like underlying anxiety or or depression. So I would say that, um, you know, for, for once, um, I'm not just counting people on things that they're coping with. I'm also a participant in this system of, you know, living through a pandemic, right? So we're, we are all kind of in it together. And um, it's sort of stretched my ability to tolerate the uncertainty, you know, where will I be working? Will I be on site? Will I be at home? Will I, um, you know, is, are there the grocery stores going to be empty? You know, can my child go to school? Those are all things that, you know, I see clients dealing with and I'm dealing with too. So I guess I'm, I don't know if I'm getting any better at tolerating uncertainty, but I'm certainly getting a lot of practice at it. We all are. <laughs> <laughs> but I think, you know, given that it's such a difficult time, I wonder what counselors do when there are things going on in the larger system? Like what kind of advice do you give when there are things happening that are just beyond people's control? Right. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, um, some things we just have to help. We kind of have to just bear witness and, and hold people's hands through. Right. So we, you know, there's problems that we can't fix and, you know, we, we just try to um, hold space and and be with someone as, as they go through um, suffering. And uh, we, we don't try to talk them out of that because that's just part of being human. And um, yeah, it's, it's a painful part of being human. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much. Thanks for taking the time to talk to us. Oh, well, thank you. This has been kind of fun. Thanks for listening to this special episode of What the Job. And special thanks to our guest, Becky Ponting, for talking to us about imposter syndrome. As always, a reminder that the best place for alumni to connect with other alumni about jobs, mentorship, or volunteer opportunities is the online platform Switchboard. It's free, and you can try it out today at uab.ca slash sboard. It's a great tool no matter where you are in your career journey. That's all for this episode. For What the Job, I'm Matt Ray. 
See you next time.